A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. My Beautiful Comrade from the North by Matthew Cayley My beautiful comrade from the North supposedly still arrives wrapped in thrift store fur, an amber necklace setting off the oval face, her voice low as a cello. A cello that plays Dvorak's cello concerto, opening up allegro, B minor, then B major, nary a nod nor hello. Back by the Elvet, below that grey shrugging bridge and greyer river, defined by its own stale glow. Goes over a pond weed weir, sheet music you scan, left, right and down, then left, right in the Western tradition. Some yawning a.m. when she dons her silk shift to prepare two coffees, blows through the expelaire or tilts a cherry actimel, steps out of her bra, or bleaches her brown hair with lime like the Menelicians, the long-flanked goddess, Persephone, Demeter, the other one, here, synonym and antonym of muses, here, earplugs in. Forgive, forgive me, I over-elaborate, that is my mandate. Two lost trainers hang from lank festival hoardings, the river, just a river. Just the dour elvet, chrome brown eyes, brown half-top hat, lovely crooked teeth, so quiet inside, such sky, the suitor is forced to say, Can I touch your hair? No. Can I touch your shoe? No. Can I touch your small, hard left breast? No, and then, no. Can I touch your fur below? No. Can I touch base? No, is an outright flat refusal your only tactic? No. Matthew, where did this poem come from? Okay, Mark, uh, this is a strange one uh, and possibly atypical um, of my poems in that it's partially based on um, uh, real-life events and most of the time my poems come out of language. They don't come out of actual things that have happened to me. I lie and I make things up Mm -hmm. and I collage things. Uh, This one... Uh, is based on a real life event, and secondly, uh, it's different in that it probably uh, there's probably eighteen years in between first drafts for it and actually writing it. Oh, so gosh. There's, there's a bit of a preempting to this, a little bit of a ramble um, 
I know it's 1999 because my first book had come out and I was touring all over the country to, to do readings, to promote the book as you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also previous to that, I'd been living in Brixton, in Brixton squats since about 1986 and um, leading, shall we say, somewhat precarious existence. Uh, <laughs> and a very good friend of mine said, Matthew, it, this is all going to end um, and you better you know, buy yourself a flat or something. So I managed to find a place um, up in Crystal Palace. And this just gave me a little bit of distance from Brixton and, and mm. perhaps enjoying myself in life a little too much. And I had to disentangle myself from quite a few strange, um, lovely, but but um, ultimately doomed relationships. And so I give myself a little bit of distance. And it was the last reading I was going to do for my debut book first. And I was due to go up to um, Durham, the Durham Literary Festival, to do, to do a gig there. It was the night before. And a feeling came over me. I was in this flat which had um, no furniture, a mattress, and a dance set um, for playing LPs. <laughs> That's uh-huh. all I had. And, uh, um, uh, and this feeling came over me that when I went to Durham, I was going to meet a significant other. I'm not a mystical person or a visionary poet or any of those things. This mm-hmm. feeling was very strong. Then I went to bed because I had to get up very early. It's a long train journey. I went mm-hmm. to Durham. On the train, I started writing this poem. Anyway, I couldn't finish it and I didn't finish. I got off the train, that beautiful long journey from London up to um, Durham. You come into the roofs of Durham. I got off the train. I started walking down the high street. It was about two o'clock. The reading wasn't till the evening. And um, there was this uh, beautiful looking woman walking along the high street. And I started following her. And after about 200 yards, I then stopped. I just said, Matthew, this is I don't think the word stalking had been invented in 1999. But I was thinking, Matthew, this is ridiculous. What on earth are you doing? You've, you've become possessed. Mm-hmm. And it just, I just forgot about it then. I then met a novelist called Kevin Sampson just in the street who was going to be reading at the same reading. And we went off to the pub. The reading was delayed. It went on for ages and ages and ages because the, there was a band and they had a problem with their sound equipment. Anyway, right at the very end, um, uh, I'd been reading with my good friends, Brendan Cleary and Paul Summers that I'd done a tour of Ireland with. And uh, the reading for some reason went exceptionally well, even though we're all a bit three sheets to the wind, probably because we were, it just, it just went incredibly well. And the organizers had put on a, a coach for a lot of the audience to go back to Newcastle. And Paul and Brendan were going back to Newcastle as well. And, um, and this is probably about one o'clock in the morning. And, I was had a motel that I was going. They put were going to put me up in down the river. And Paul Summers, being a lovely man, I was waving goodbye to them. Paul, through the window, was going. Matthew won't be able to remember where his motel is because I have no sense of direction, no sense of memory. And Paul, a lovely man, was thinking of me even in while he was seven sheets to the wind and facing a long journey home. And uh, behind me, a voice said, "I know where the something something motel is." And there was. Uh, who turned out to be Pavlo, turned out to be my wife. So this is an extraordinary um, idea that what I'd been attempting to write, I found out many years later, was a summoning spell. And so way back in the history when poems were ballads and riddles, um, prim- primitive countries, uh, people would write um, various spells to do various things. You might want to hex your neighbor or you might want to do mm-hmm. all kinds of nefarious things. 
um, but also to summon somebody, to summon somebody up. And what I realized, yeah. being a non-mystical person, I'd actually written half a poem, and it's, it appeared to um, summon someone up. Then um, there was a, a long period where Pavra and I were kind of courting, and then we got together. We've been together for 23 years. We have two grown-up daughters. I was back in Durham around about 2016, maybe 2017. I'd been in between times many times and had a lovely time, always had a great time reading. This particular time, it was a good reading. It was afterwards I was strolling through the center of Durham. It was a very, very gray day. One of those days when the grayness is almost like a filter you've put on a mat. There was nothing. There's hardly anybody in the center of Durham. And I was walking yeah. by the bridge, which is called the Elva, and by the river. And there was just nothing. And I think I was tired because I'd done the reading and some recording. And I was just very, very flat. And I was kind of thinking, how, whatever happened to those days when I used to write a summoning spell and could conjure my wife out of nothing by writing a poem, even though I didn't believe in summoning spells. It was just what was special about, you know, and then I remembered that poem. So then I started writing a poem from the position of the terrible gray flat day and thinking back. So there's 18 years in between. So time is very necessary to that poem. And it's both looking back and then from that weird probably about an hour of feeling kind of um, uh, very flat about it and thinking, how on earth could I have been so cloud-headed to be writing a summoning spell and actually conjure someone, uh, apparently, out of the ether? From this flatness, suddenly then, then there's a small recovery of the initial moment, I think. I think that's the, the, the curve of the poem. Wow. And that was actually the first time you met your wife-to-be? That was the very first time I met Pavla, yes. So maybe poems do make something happen. Well, it's dangerous, you see. It's dangerous. I tried it as an experiment a few years later, and there's a poem also in um, this book that the poem is from. The book is called Trawler Man's Turquoise. There's another poem called Summoning Spell, where yes. I just tried to conjure up somebody that I'd known, not an amorous person, but just somebody I'd known a long time ago that I'd really like to see. And it was a dismal failure. So there's another poem in the book called Summoning Spell, which I think ends so much for the summoning spell. So they're kind of like twin poems uh, in the book. Right, because that, and that one comes earlier in the collection. It right? does, it does. So that's kind of almost like a misdirection, saying summoning spells don't work, folks, and then you hit us with the one that does work. Yeah, apparently seemed to work, I would say. It appeared appeared to work, I would always I'd always uh, gloss. So, I mean, I would never have guessed all of this hinterland to this poem, but very often reading your poems, they almost seem to advertise the hinterland. There's a lot of, I mean, you say yourself, I over-elaborate. There's a lot of sidebars. There's a lot of trains of thought sparked off by one another. And, and also the poems, if you read the whole collection, folks, a lot of them are kind of talking to each other. There's a lot of references and characters will appear between poems. So I guess in that sense, is it true to your normal method? Yes, you're right. It's absolutely true to the, the if it's normal or abnormal <laughs> method. I, I'm, I'm, it's not common. <laughs> in, in life, I'm hyper-associative anyway. So we were talking about my wife, Pavla. It drives Pavla mad because uh, she's Czech and, and uh, she's an artist, but she's quite logical in her way of thinking. So she'll be talking about something 
And my reply to her talk about this particular subject will be something six, at least six stages removed from it, yet I've made the connection to it. And she'll be going, but we're talking about this. So I'm naturally hyper-associative. And I think I've relaxed enough in my poetry to allow that to come through. A lot of people, if they read that, it can be off-putting. I'm very well aware to a lot of people. And a lot of early reviews of my work um, would say things like, oh, clever and show-off quoting and be very um, uh, perturbed about kind of you have to track down the reference. My poems are very much to be read and they're sonic forms, mm. I would say, before anything else. And when, I'm, when the poem is being written in the white heated composition, I sometimes really don't know the references. So when I've got them down, I then have to look them up on Wikipedia or, <laughs> or, 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 or better forms, <laughs> he says in his academic hat, um, and find out what they are myself. So I think I do a lot of reading and uh, I don't have a great retentive memory. So I do a lot of reading and it, it goes in somewhere, but uh, um, it kind of regurgitates out at strange, strange moments. I was going to say, you, you evidently have a good regurgitative memory. And I think, you know, this is, to me, one of the things I really like about your poetry is it's fun to read. It's playful. It's surprising. And I think it advertises right from the first line, supposedly. So this kind of advertises, this, you know, that this is all happening in the, the realm of the subjunctive. And you do this quite a bit, don't you? I mean, you like words like apparently or allegedly at the beginning of poems. Yes, yeah. That that started a long time ago um, with uh, John Stammers, uh, the mighty Mr. John Stammers, yes. poet, uh, yeah. published by Picador. Uh, three great books from Picador. Uh, and uh, we were just having a workshop-type conversation, but just natural. We are just drinking by the on the South Bank or something. It wasn't mm-hmm. a formal thing. And we were talking about how poems begin. And John likes a very extravagant opening line that is almost... Mm-hmm taking the mickey out of the romanticism of an extravagant opening line. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my poetry is about that. It's about registers of language. So mm-hmm. I don't really believe in an about, you know. And when I'm writing, there's no about in my head. This poem, as I've said, because I've mentioned my wife, now everyone will go, this poem is about Matthew yeah, his wife. Yeah, yeah. It isn't totally. It's more, I think, about registers of language and then the feelings that and behind that that animate that language. So I would always see, I always see poems as little attempts at a work of art. That's you know I believe poetry is an art form. It's a little attempt at a work of art. You can never name one it, that it is one. But that's what I'm attempting to do. And there's no about. I'm not trying to give a message. There's no um, uh, this phrase equals like an equation yeah, and then there's a yeah. prose version of it my poems are uh, uh, constructed out of language and the language totally dictates where the poem goes and you know everything is kind of mixed up with everything else isn't it which i guess is the what it's like to be human and have a mind full of thoughts as you're walking through the world well exactly if you if you um research has been done um, I remember reading research, it was done in the 90s, but if you walked diagonally across uh, one of the major cities of Europe, you would be exposed to something like nearly 2,000 individual signs. That's not semiotic signs, uh, that's actual 
information, advertising mm-hmm. messages, or images, or text, or image and text. So that was back in the 90s. So now if you think in the digital area where you're walking along with your phone and there's the backs of trucks and digital billboards and uh-huh. th- things on people's T-shirts, we are bombard- we're absolutely bombarded. And there's some evidence, more recent research, that our brains are actually uh, learning to tune out information because otherwise we might, we, might, we might collapse or die or fall down in the road because our brains can't take all this peripheral information. Uh, that's that's coming in. So we are in an age of information overload. And I think people do this, actually. They might hear me at a reading and go, he's ridiculously fast and making all these silly uh, hyper-associative references. But people are on the phone, they're watching television, they've mm-hmm. got earphones on, someone's talking to them, and they've got a book. And particularly young people, they're doing all of these things. My daughters are doing all those things, and I come in and go, dinner's ready and their head the back of their head doesn't even turn so i go i said dinner's ready <laughs> and they go i heard you dad because because they're well used to six channels coming yeah. in and we all are yeah. Yeah. if you put that in a poem because people have certain expectations of what a poem is people are nervous about hearing a poem they want to get the meaning mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah they rush to the meaning rather than just enjoy the the poem the sounds of it and the movement of it and the cadence of it um so so uh that's where that misunderstanding comes but it's actually it's it's pretty close to just walking through the city if you're not looking at your phone uh, or possibly you are as well and that's an additional layer of information well that but i mean that's lovely that little bit in italics forgive forgive me i over elaborate but then in square brackets that is my mandate (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess. You know, there's a lot of, you hear, um, what we're doing now, Mark, is something which has talking, the poet themselves talking about the poem. I I can't think of any other thing which lays you open to saying more ridiculous things and being seen to be more ridiculous and up your own backside than than poets talking earnestly about their process. You know, Um, uh, I'm very much for the, you're a very good intercaluta, whatever the, the word is. So, so that's great, and we can have a lovely time. I think if that becomes the kind of the norm that we're trying to uh, we're trying to translate the poem into a readable piece of prose, it becomes that becomes a worry. And so, I do believe in the irreducible. If if the work's any good, in any work of art is good in the first place, there's an irreducible something about it uh, that hopefully can't be explained away. Well, exactly. I mean, that's why I, I'm on this mini crusade on this show to really just, okay, it's natural to think, oh, what is it about? What does it mean? But I was saying last time about the crack and it could mean anything. It could mean all kinds of things and probably will mean more things the more people read it into the future. But I'm kind of really interested in how is the poem made and what is it doing? Um, and clearly you are a very conscious craftsman. And, and it's, this is probably the, the record for the podcast the longest gestation of a poem so could you maybe say something about the initial drafts and the form that was in and how you arrived at the final form um i can't actually remember what the initial drafts were like and i've lost them so um when i recreated the beginning of the poem i was kind of doing it from the memory of which i had a pretty good memory i, did, I have a bad memory but of that day i have a very good memory mm-hmm. so i kind yeah. of remembered where the poem was and i remembered 
songs and things which were informing it. So I kind of could reconstruct that beginning. Um, uh, form. It's written in uh, very close to tanker form. And mm-hmm. a tanker uh, is like a, um, you've heard of the Japanese poem form. Um, I'm sure most of the listeners will have heard of haiku. And that's yeah. um, originally a, a Japanese uh, poem form, which the Japanese don't actually use syllables, but in the English version of it, we count yeah. syllables to get a close approximation of, of the Japanese uh, ha- haiku or hoku, as it was originally called. Um, a tanker, uh, I would call, is a morbidly obese haiku, in that it, <laughs> in that it, it adds, uh, the haiku has two lines, um, uh, 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 you know, very few lines and uh, five and seven syllables. And um, ha- it has three lines, sorry, the, 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 mm-hmm. uh, the haiku has three lines and uh, it has five, seven, five syllables and then your, your haiku is done. The tanker adds two more lines to that, so you get five lines and two more lines of seven syllables. Now, why I got into the, the terrible world of counting syllables Again, is a bit of a long, um, uh, a long run up. I'll keep it brief. Um, Ken Smith, uh, the mighty Ken Smith, one of mm-hmm. the greatest poets, I think, British poets of the last seventy or eighty years. I was very lucky to know him a bit, and he had written a blurb for the back of my first book. And he said, in what he said, he said Matthew Cayley's long loping line, because I'm. If people know me, I'm six foot three and a half, and I'm unusually <laughs> thin and tall and have very skinny legs. So. Uh, since there, after he did that, everyone kept going on about Matthew Cayley's long loping line. Indeed, my, my the lines in a lot of my early poems are very, very long, and they have to be indented back into mm. the page. Yeah, and I yeah. think up to recently, I was one of three or four poets that my publisher publishes who have to have a slightly wider book size because of that. And I just got a little nothing against Ken or anyone had said that. I just, how do I shorten my breath? I want to shorten my breath. And at the same time, I was reading things from Basil Bunting. I think he said, people who deal with syllabics must be insane. So it's <laughs> brilliant, brilliant poet, Basil Bunting. And loads of other people, quotes from lots of people. Yeah. Martin Stannard, always a very forthright commentator, said, anyone who resorts to uh, syllabics has lost the plot. And that is like a red rag to a bull to me. I'm very contrary. So I was going, oh, syllabics. So I started moving into syllabics and trying to uh, – I just started for 18 months – I tried to write tanker mm-hmm. and I'd walk around the city and try and just sketch things and write tanker. And they were awful for 18 months. They were really bad. But what that does in, is internalized form. So yeah. when you said you're a conscious craftsperson, uh, it's conscious to begin with and not very good. And then you have to forget it. Mm-hmm. And then it maybe gets something. So mm-hmm. I wrote a lot of tanker that weren't any good. And then I wrote about six or seven, which I thought were much better. And they went in, um, uh, one of the books. I think it probably is the, this last book. Um, and uh, 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 but then my long loping line reasserted itself. So the poems would come in tanker form, five, um, seven, five, seven, seven syllables. But that mm-hmm. would become the stanza form. And but the the poem would flow on through that stanza form. Mm-hmm. So the long, unfortunately, my long loping line I was trying to get rid of. It just looks shorter. <laughs> because it's syllabically uh, made concise, but it actually runs through many stanzas. It's deceptive. You've got it th- back in through the back door, yes. But that kind of just happened, I guess, those are forces within you um, 
maybe to do with maybe Ken had something. Maybe it's to do with I'm long and thin. I write long thin poems, you know. And uh, if you try and uh, go against that, something else happens, and then you reassert yourself. So that ebb and flow. And I think as well to connect Mark what we were saying earlier, because there are lots of hyper-associative references and strange connections and time gaps. The form for me just helps anchor and shape these mm-hmm. strange. It gives it some. I think if it was, um, if I was using a more kind of uh, uh, innovative linguistic scattering of the words across the page, I love those sorts of poems. But I think with what I'm actually doing as well, it would almost be too much. So I think this is a some kind of slight restraint on the the hyper-associative moving forward, a river of hyper-association. It's a little dam uh, on that occasionally. So there, there is a nice tension between those two. Yes, I think so. And I think, I think poems are, uh, for me anyway, poems are tension and risk. Um, and if, if, if there's no risk in the poem, the only risk that you feel for yourself, maybe nobody else knows the risk that you're taking, but there's got to be a sense of jeopardy and risk and there's got to be a, a tension. So often my poems have two or three things in them which you can't see a relation and they're trying to nose each other to find a relation or, or a block of two things which are trying to come together um, uh, but don't have any obvious connection. So some kind of tension mm. um, and some kind of element of risk. Well, this is fascinating and I must confess i'm feeling a bit silly here because i've I've just come back from japan and i was talking to tanka poets in japan and i read this poem and i just didn't think of tanka at all i can see it now that you say it but it's like the magic eye illusion it's just (laughs) popped out of the page there there might now be a a, a, um if people start counting on their fingers which (laughs) when you mention this people start counting (laughs) on their fingers um, I, I, I started counting on my fingers when I was writing all these. I've kind of stopped that now. So probably in the next book, I'm, I'm sure in this book that there's, although we went through it with a fine tooth comb, I'm sure there are probably, even in this poem, there's probably a line which is six or, or there's a line which is seven. Or, um, and I'm now just more naturally putting maybe a line that's two lots of fives to become a 10 or seven and a five and and, mm-hmm. and 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 i'm not worrying i don't i don't count on my fingers anymore there's a kind of i've done it enough now over several years for it to be a a way of the line coming and um if it's slightly out it doesn't doesn't bother me at all and it's not for the reader you said oh i just realized it's yeah. not for uh it's not for the reader to to know it's not something i announce necessarily at readings mm. uh it's for me to, 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 to give it some shape and to give it that resistance and a bit of tension and a slight break on the, the pouring forth. Kirk, I'd like to come back to this idea of tension and risk um, because it feels like there is quite a lot of both in the ending of this poem. And again, without drawing the equals sign, is there anything you can say or you would like to say about the, the ending of the poem? Yes. Um, uh, if we wanted to give a socio-political reading of the poem. And um, I think Roddy Lumsden, the, the, the poet and anthologist, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the late, great Roddy Lumsden, yes. in his um, anthology Identity Parade, he called the time we were in, and I think we're still in, in it, um, the pluralist now. And mm-hmm. I think that's true of poetry. He meant very simply 
there's there's more types of poetry being written, all the past types, all the present types, and all the future mm-hmm. types of poetry along a spectrum from the most mainstream to the most experimental are all available and written. So whatever type of poetry you like, you can find it. And secondly, poetry is being written and, and read and listened to by a, a wider proportion of persons and types of person yeah. um, than ever has been before. Um, in all the every category you can possibly think of, there's still further to go in that, I'm sure. But but at the moment, that's the moment we're in. Um, in terms of the generalized critique of art and culture, I think I would like a pluralist critique of art and culture. Unfortunately, it can appear as if the only critique in town is the socio-political, and I've got nothing against the socio-political. It's another critique. But sometimes you miss out on the critique that you're talking about, for instance. Uh, critiques from within the art itself, like mm-hmm. the form of poetry, or or um, uh, you know the objective correlative, or or the lyric eye. There's all of these uh, discourses and forms which are particular to the art as well. They tend to get sidelined by the socio-political, mm-hmm. and of course these things aren't um, they're not uh, mutually exclusive. If no. you look at the lyric eye, it was mainly men, troubadours, yeah. projecting on on uh, on women to begin with, but then that has changed, thankfully, quite a mm-hmm. lot. So the risk in this poem is that it starts like there is a male troubadour who is projecting upon mm. a silent, objectified, feminine other and projecting yeah. onto them their, uh, their romantic ideals. Uh, once we've been through the little italic Forgive me, forgive me. We then we then reconjure the person slightly. I think mm-hmm. uh, I'm as much an interpreter of this poem as everybody is. Slightly more realistically, and then at the end, the the male protagonist, not necessarily me, is making a crude attempt to try and show their their, their need to be close. And the, the 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 woman, the feminine other, is in complete control. She's just saying no, and you know the person is respecting that. It's mm-hmm. totally uh, consensual. There's nothing terrible happening. Going no, you can't do that. You can't mm-hmm. do that. You can't do that. And then right at the end, there's there's we end on the word no. And I uh, later on, not at the time of writing the poem, I was conscious of the James Joyce um, and wanting to end Ulysses, the great modernist novel, on the most positive word in the English yeah. language. No, uh, yes, uh, the opposite of no, and. And there's a litany of yeses in Molly Bloom's soliloquy at the end of that book. So this is a litany of no's. I only realized this subsequently. Mm-hmm. And I'm not comparing myself to James Joyce. Um, I'm much taller. Uh, uh, <laughs> but I realized this was a no. But I didn't want it. But the no is kind of, it's a totally definite no. There's no other. other. But there's a kind of idea that perhaps if the poem goes on, um, uh, there's, there's, there's not a complete, complete washout for a potential for some kind of friendship or something between these two people. So uh, you have to go, be, just as Ulysses holds out the vague possibility that Bloom and um, Leopold Bloom and his wife, Molly Bloom, may get over their marital problems and the grief over their, uh, their, their, their child who died and uh, that that Stephen Dedalus, the other character, might be some kind of um, fugitive in between son, substitute son that mm. helps him do that. But no way, we don't get beyond that. Yes, so unless we read Chris McCabe's amazing follow-on novel, um, <laughs> we don't get beyond that point. So you're left with something that is uh, like a film that ends on a bad point, but the the viewers can think possibly 
there's this possibility. Now, I happen to know, and so do your listeners now, that that it that that we became married and we had two daughters and we're still together. Yeah, that's not necessary for the reader to know. That's just um, so. There's a kind of so the whole poem is really a reflection, possibly on language, not on actual um, social or sexual politics of people in the real world. It's to do with language and and uh, should a poet write. Um, uh, uh, exactly what is uh, honestly totally inside them. Should they try and mitigate with the current uh, uh, socio-political ideas or any political ideas or any social ideas that are going around and be censored by that? Is there a halfway house? How do those two sets of language come together? And for me, it's more about those two sets of language and approaches just crackling together. I'm not trying to mediate that. Um, mm-hmm. Real life is very is very complicated it's more complicated than the aspirational politics that we have i'm all for the aspirations i'm Mm. totally behind them but then that aspirational politics can sometimes um cope with real life is a lot more more complex i love talking about the politics of the day social or otherwise um but it's different from the poem and um uh, i think often the poem is kind of it's in that murk of ambiguity that the poem exists i think I don't. I don't start a poem thinking I'm going to write a risky poem that will get yeah. up the noses of all these people. I think that's a terrible. Um, yeah. uh, I think shock is a very lame uh, starting point for a work of art. Mm. Um, I think if the work of art does shock, um, it's usually the natural progression of somebody who's been working for eleven years, probably on technical uh, aspects of something, and then what they do then then shocks people because it seems a little ahead of its time. And interestingly, it's that word no that opens up the possibility of more dialogue. I mean, I was thinking if if she'd said yes, refusal is my only tact, that w- yes would have closed everything off. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So you're kind so, of left in a bit of a, a hall of mirrors at the end. Pavla herself would probably correct me on this. She corrects me all the time because I'm kind of so delighted with the idea. Facts mm-hmm. and dates and things tend to... Um, tend to fall off me. But there's something within the uh, Czech people when they're speaking English, and Pavla speaks English very well, but when they speak English, they use the word no a lot. And it, it, when they say no, they use it in a, in a, it has a very broad sweep. And it's as much a kind of, as we would say, no, you know, uh, yeah, or right. no, or there's, there's, there's lots of intonation. So I'm still caught out of it with Pavla now, where I say something to Pavla, just very casual about what we're going to have for dinner or something. And she'll say no. And I'm thinking, oh, so you don't want um, fish, breaded fish. And uh, she's not meaning no. So, right. so I think there's something in naturally in that when people are speaking brilliantly in a second language, there's still these kind of strange uh, misunderstandings. And I think what you get at the end there, the most you can say is there's a, there's a standoff between uh, the feminine other and the masculine other. There's mm-hmm. a standoff. And usually there is, you know, in, in any uh, early encounter uh, in the amorous or proto-amorous field. Proto, right. But both people are kind of wary and they're, they're kind of, you know, we could expect explain it in Jungian terms by saying one person is trying to project on the other, the other's trying to project on the other, and the two projections form a screen in the middle, which mm-hmm. actually the two real people don't get past unless they meet up later. And maybe in about 
or then they start living together six months later and then those screens vanish pretty quickly and you become the human being that you are rather than the act that you're giving of yourself in the amorous uh, in the early those early stages so i think it's psychologically just about there for for anybody if it was two women meeting two men meeting a man meeting a woman i i, I the fact that i've written it in this uh, uh that it's a man as a woman is real because because it's tackling to some degree the the troubadour tradition mm. of that that over egged uh yeah. language and description but but it, I would say it's universal. I think I think everyone has those butterflies in the stomach at the very first meeting and they're trying to act all casual and give off their best mm-hmm. look. And they're probably doing some very strange things with their face and their gestures they wouldn't normally, which are probably very off-putting to the other person, you know, because um, they're not being natural. Well, maybe this would be a good point to to listen to the poem again and imagine all of those things that may or may not be going on in their their present or indeed their future because all those possibilities are still there for the characters in the poem. My Beautiful Comrade from the North by Matthew Kaling My Beautiful Comrade from the North supposedly still arrives, wrapped in thrift store fur, an amber necklace setting off the oval face, her voice low as a cello. A cello that plays Dvorak's cello concerto, opening up allegro, B minor, then B major, nary a nod nor hello. Back by the elvet, below that grey shrugging bridge and greyer river, defined by its own stale glow. Goes over a pond weed weir, sheet music you scan, left, right, and down, then left, right in the Western tradition. Some yawning a.m. when she dons her silk shift to prepare two coffees, blows through the expelair, or tilts a cherry actimel, steps out of her bra, or bleaches her brown hair with lime like the Menelicians, the long flank goddess, Persephone, Demeter, the other one, here, synonym and antonym of muses, here, earplugs in. Forgive, forgive me, I over-elaborate, that is my mandate. Two lost trainers hang from lank festival hoardings, the river, just a river. Just the dour elvet, chrome brown eyes, brown half-top hat, lovely crooked teeth, so quiet inside, such sky, the suitor is forced to say, Can I touch your hair? No. Can I touch your shoe? No. Can I touch your small, hard left breast? No, and then no. Can I touch your fur below? No. Can I touch base? No. Is an outright flat refusal your only tactic? No. My Beautiful Colleague from the North by Matthew Cayley is from Trawlerman's Turquoise, published by Bloodaxe Books in 2019. In November 2023, Bloodaxe will publish Matthew's seventh collection, To Abandon Wizardry. 
His first collection, Thirst, Slow Dancer, 1999, was shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best First Collection, and his poetry has featured in many anthologies, including Identity Parade, New British and Irish Poetry, from Bloodaxe Books, Poems of the Decade, from Forward Worldwide, The Picador Book of Love Poems, from Picador, Pestilence, from Belfast Lapwing, and Divining Dante, from Recent Work Press. Prophecy is Easy, a pamphlet of very loose versions from French 20th century poets, was published by Blueprint in 2021. Previously, Matthew was on the fringes of the small press revival in the 1980s, designed record sleeves, lived in Brixton squats, and taught in art schools. These days, he is a mentor for the poetry school and has also recently taught poetry at the universities of St Andrews, Winchester and Royal Holloway, London. He lives in London with the Czech-born artist Pavla Alchin. They have two daughters, Iris and Mina. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.